The world economy is slowing down. Last month, China reported its economy grew by a mere 0.8% in the second quarter compared with the prior three months. That much-anticipated post-COVID pickup has seen the Middle Kingdom return with a whimper rather than the very much hopeful roar after the government finally abandoned its zero-COVID policy in December. Global manufacturing has suffered as consumers came out of lockdowns and began eating up more and buying less home office equipment. And although America grew strongly in the first half of the year, most forecasters expect the economy to slow down soon. But if recent history has taught us anything, it's that nothing in geopolitics, or macroeconomics for that matter, is forever. And trends which look inexorable come to an end. So, before I take the Lloyd's List microphone off on a short summer vacation, I thought I would leave you with a little longer-term perspective to mull over on the beach. The renowned economist, author and historian Mark Levinson has been on this podcast before, and we were talking then about the next phase of globalisation. But that was nearly two years ago, and a lot has happened since then. So I asked if he wouldn't mind coming back on for a quick catch-up. Trade wars, decoupling, military conflicts, recessions and warnings of global trade collapse are not in short supply these days. So I wanted to get a view on the longer-term perspective. We spoke briefly about the realities of nearshoring and friendshoring. Both are in the news, both seem to be wholly misrepresented by economists. We spoke about the long-term trend that trade in manufactured goods is likely to grow more slowly than the world economy in the years ahead, and what that ultimately means for shipping, which has based business models around these growth expectations. We spoke about the need for regional trade packs, partly as a result of the disintegration of the WTO, and why the future looks more fragmented and regionalised as a result. But we started where we left off two years ago. And I asked him whether he sees any fundamental changes to affect his basic outlook on the next phase of globalization. We're certainly seeing a lot more uh, geopolitical interference in trade uh, in, in the United States, in Europe, in parts of Asia. Uh, I think this has been somewhat overstated in the sense that uh, the uh, governments are concerned about trade in uh, a limited number of, of products, particularly uh, semiconductors, semiconductor equipment, uh, automobiles. That's where we're seeing a lot of the action around what we in the States refer to as industrial policy. That there are lots and lots of products that are traded that are really not the subject of a great deal of government interest at this point. So I, I think that of the, the, while the geopolitical uh, situation has changed, uh, I don't think it has been uh, as as great as, as people think. Um, there have also been some interesting workarounds uh, in terms of geopolitics. Uh, for example, there has been a lot of attention in the past to the decline of the World Trade Organization and the implication that this was going to uh, lead to uh, a lot of more trade barriers. Well, we're seeing a lot of other sorts of non-agreements that deal with trade involving various groups of countries. They're not formally trade treaties in some cases. Uh, they have different kinds of commitments that may not include reducing tariffs. They have different kinds of structures for consultation among countries. But the point is that there are these efforts to 
somewhat circumvent the World Trade Organization and try to keep trade flows open. Uh, this is an interesting sort of development. It's hard to know how successful it's going to be, but uh, we're, we're certainly uh, seeing it both in um, uh, the Pacific and in Europe. I mean, it's an interesting position for the shipping industry because shipping relies on this global rules-based order, if you like. And there's obviously been criticism in terms of the regulatory oversight within shipping from the International Maritime Organization. But by and large, we still have that global oversight. The WTO, World Trade Organization, as, you, as you've you know pointed out, is a much weaker beast than it once was. And do you, do you think these regional trade packs are a sort of natural result of that fragmentation that's inevitable when you don't have a, a big global regulator that's able to deal with this stuff? Well, you don't have a big global regulator. You don't have, at this point in time, a, a workable system in, with, within which countries can file complaints about other countries' trade practices because the WTO isn't able to adjudicate uh, these sorts of complaints. But yet countries want to have a trade framework. So you see things like this uh, oddly named comprehensive agreement uh, in Asia uh, among a bunch of countries, not including the United States, but now including the United Kingdom, to uh, liberalize trade in certain areas and to provide uh, a method for dealing with disputes and that sort of thing. The United States... Uh, unveiled recently a non-agreement, uh, sort of an understanding with a number of Asian countries that agreed to promote uh, standardization of supply chains and that sort of thing. Exactly how this is going to work out is not clear. It's much less formally legalistic than previous trade agreements. But it, uh, it could yet be effective in, in keeping uh, trade open. So we're having to get used to a, a new system, a non-system as it may be. Well, not quite. I mean, the, the, the idea of, of, of nearshoring and friendshoring is another aspect of, of, of changing uh, trade patterns, I guess, that we hear a lot about in the news. And friendshoring is a, a phrase coined in the US to suggest that, you know, we're going to be trading with uh, people that we agree with rather than that are necessarily growing. I mean, you you look at the numbers rather than the politics. I mean, are, are concepts like this borne out by economic evidence or are they politics as far as you can tell? Well, friendshoring has a basic problem that has not drawn very much attention. Uh, if you are in North America or Europe or Japan or Korea, most of your friends quote-unquote, friends, are relatively slow-growing economies. There are economies in which uh, populations are shrinking or growing at a slow rate. Um, there are countries in which a consumer spending on goods is growing at a slow rate. Uh, these are not, they may be good friends, but these are not uh, countries with whom you're really going to have a lot of growth in trade because the economic underpinnings are, are not there. Meanwhile, the countries that have the greatest economic growth potential in South Asia and in Africa are countries that don't really want to be having exclusive friendships. They'd like to deal with other countries. They'd like to engage with a lot of other countries, 
but they're not necessarily looking to be the special friend of the United States or the EU or China. So I think we need to be careful of, about friendshoring because we don't want to trap ourselves on the slow-growing part of the world. And that, that growth um, trajectory is important because, you know, when we spoke last, you were you were describing this next phase of globalization. And, you know, generally speaking, when we're looking at the long-term trends, not, you know, how how China is currently doing this quarter versus last quarter, but the long-term trends in, in manufactured goods, that is likely to start growing less in, in the world economy in the years ahead. Can you give us a, a you know, a, a realistic sort of longer term view in terms of how these trade patterns are going to evolve? Because that's a real consequence to the shipping industry, I think. Sure. We're going to see slower growth in demand for manufactured goods. Uh, no question about that. Uh, and that has uh, a number of, of causes. Uh, one, as I've mentioned, is simply slow population growth in many places. Uh, and a slow general economic growth. Uh, we're seeing uh, the continuation of a long-term shift in uh, personal consumption from goods to services. People, as they grow uh, older, buy less stuff, and we're seeing populations around the world grow older. We're seeing countries where the median age is now 40 or, or older, and those people are not going to be buying a lot of the things that move in containers. They're going to be buying holidays and restaurant meals and a lot of health care. So these are forces that weigh against the growth in trade. I think one that has gotten less attention and probably deserves more is a shift in business investment spending. I don't really have global figures here, but I think some figures uh, from the United States really a point to what's going on here. Uh, over the um, last uh, decade, uh, we've seen uh, in the United States uh, spending on uh, non-residential equipment uh, go up about 30%. That's factory machinery and that sort of thing. We've seen investment in intellectual property products go up 91%. Okay, almost three times as much. Uh, business is putting more and more of its money not into machinery, but into the software that drives that machinery uh, to, to, or into to research and development. Uh, just in terms of the total fixed investment in the United States, uh, 10 years ago, 39% of it was equipment. This is residential and business. Now, in 2022, 26% of it was equipment. Okay, so a significant drop in the share of total investment that is in equipment and growth in the share of total investment that's in intangible products. Okay, so that, I think, tells you something about the trajectory of, of future demand for uh, manufactured goods, because industrial equipment is certainly a very important part of what gets carried uh, on, on container ships. So I think these are really the, the long-term trends, and, and they are going to persist quite apart from uh, what, uh, uh, what we're seeing in the geopolitics. Uh, you know, for, for, for example, uh, I think we're seeing that businesses are now able to hang on to their equipment for longer. 
because they can update the software. They don't need to replace the machine necessarily if they can make the machine operate more efficiently with updated software, which can be done in real time. So that has really some some long-term impact on the demand for shipping. It certainly does. And the the, the big debate, uh, you know, here in the shipping industry, of course, is, is decarbonization, much the same as, as any other major sector. We're looking at, you know, our position within a, a global energy transition and, and how the integrated supply chain becomes more efficient. And there's a lot of talk of slow steaming and, and, and how we can uh, do things differently. But the context of what you're saying is actually that the trades that we serve are going to change regardless of, of these efforts. And, you know, if we take a sort of uh, a bird's eye view on the, on, the, on the long-term trends, that race that we've seen to scale within shipping, uh, you know, these uh, orders for, uh, you know, larger container ships, certainly, that looks to be perhaps not the most sensible move for a future that is going to require more flexibility, more changes, and probably smaller parcel sizes. That's the way it seems to me. These giant vessels, it was, um, I guess they're calling them Megamax now, yeah. uh, 20,000, 25,000 TEUs. Well, those are great under certain conditions. One is that you've got a route that has sufficient cargo that the vessel can be filled, that you've got ports that are able to accommodate that sort of cargo. And I'm not sure that those conditions really apply to the extent that that, uh, ship lines were hoping. Uh, Those vessels are basically useful uh, between parts of East Asia and uh, Western Europe. But is there really enough cargo on those routes to fill what I gather are about 180 ships now uh, that have 20,000 or more uh, TEU capacity. Uh, Those ships can't really be deployed uh, to uh, the Americas because there's not the demand, or in some cases there's not the the physical capacity of the ports to handle them. Uh, They can't be redeployed to Africa where we're likely to be seeing faster growth of, of trade. They may not make sense to be redeployed on relatively short routes within East Asia, Southeast Asia, because the loading time is relatively long compared to the sailing time. So there's going to be a lot of time lost simply moving thousands of containers on and off on a a relatively short voyage. Is that an economically viable proposition if you're sailing from... uh, China to uh, to Vietnam, it may not be. So I'm, I'm not sure that there's really a, a, going to be that much demand out there for these giant ships. It's been interesting to see how the strategies of the ship lines have diverged. Some of them have really gone for those great big vessels. Some of them have moved their acquisitions more into the realm of 14 to 16,000 TEUs. Uh, obviously, the smaller ships are more flexible. Uh, they may be easier to fill. So I think that there are a lot of advantages, and it's not clear, uh, at least from the work I've seen, that the uh, cost per slot on these Megamax ships is all that much, uh, all that much lower. So uh, I'm not sure that there's a great future for these giant vessels. 
I mean, you're obviously somebody who is an economist. You're an author, an historian. You, you take a sort of a, a view on these things from the sort of economic evidence rather than the reality of, of, of day-to-day shipping. But I think that's an interesting position to be looking at these changes from. You've written extensively about shipping, so you know the mindset, you know the um, you know the traditional nature of shipping. I mean, do you see any other economic patterns, any long-term trends that the industry probably isn't paying enough attention to simply because you know it's it's there in the thick of it. It's looking at the day-to-day quarterly growth sets of numbers coming its way. It's not looking 20, 30 years in the future like you are. Well, obviously, we're seeing changes in particular products that are technology-driven and that are certainly going to affect the industry. Uh, I guess the easiest example of that is uh, in the auto industry. Uh, There's now a lot of uh, attention to the efforts to build um, gigafactories, to make auto batteries in uh, Europe or in North America, and these are heavily subsidized, and, and we know the story. But what people are are forgetting here is that these are cargoes that were on the way out anyhow uh, in electrification, regardless of where the batteries are made, just because electric vehicles have so many fewer parts than internal combustion vehicles. There is this whole segment of trade, which by my understanding is several percentage points of what is carried in, in container ships, that's going to go away. We're not going to need catalytic converters anymore. We're not going to need mufflers. We're not going to need a whole range of things that uh, have traditionally moved in container ships. So I think that's an example, and and we're seeing that in a a number of other industries. So there's just going to have to be some uh, adjustment in terms of expectations because uh, the, the world is changing and that cargo still is, 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 is not going to be what it was in, in these specific areas. Um, take a look at other cargos, uh, things like furniture, for example. Well, again, this is a large cargo. Uh, there's a lot of, of furniture being shipped uh, internationally. But uh, housing construction has been quite slow in North America. It's been quite slow in, in Asia. Uh, in parts of Asia, uh, it's been very slow in most of uh, Europe. Is there going to be demand for all this furniture that's been going around the world? Uh, we'll have to see, but I'm I'm, uh, I'm dubious. And let me ask you about the um, the, the question of, of supply chain resilience, which is another political um, phrase that's obviously being bandied around. You know, in the, in, in the wake of the pandemic and Um, incidents like the Ever Given blocking the sewers, Uh, we have seen politicians uh, concern themselves much more with this idea of supply chain security, uh, as if it is a sort of a tangible thing that you can just uh, turn on and off and and, and invest in. It's not that simple, as as we know. But the idea of risk uh, within the supply chain, that, that does feel like it is a different conversation now. Absolutely. Uh, companies uh, in transportation and in manufacturing are paying far more attention to uh, supply chain risk than was the case previously. Uh, This ties into the conversation about nearshoring or friendshoring, because I think a lot of the uh, political leaders who've been engaged in this have assumed that nearshoring improves resilience. 
And that's not necessarily the case. If you have a limited number of suppliers of a key product and one of those suppliers can't deliver, you have a problem. And that's true whether or not you're getting your goods from near or far. Uh, we had an incident in the States very recently with a pharmaceutical plant that was hit by a tornado. This is going to cause a shortage of certain pharmaceutical products. This is not a matter of offshoring. This is a matter of not having sufficient sources of supply. And so I think uh, there's a slow but growing understanding that resilience doesn't necessarily have to do with the specific location of production so much as with diversification, diversification of production locations, diversification of transport routes, uh, diversification of carriers. And uh, my sense is that the biggest multinational firms are paying serious attention to this now. Uh, I think that's going to affect the way trade moves. It's already affecting the way trade moves. Uh, you're not seeing anyone who wants to sign a contract to have all of their freight moved by a single carrier or moved through a single port or uh, on a single railroad. And none of that is happening anymore. People are deliberately and very carefully hedging their bets. And I think that's going to continue. Wonderful. Uh, Mark, as ever, fascinating to talk to you. And thank you so much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. It's my pleasure, Richard. Thank you so much. Well, that is where we're going to leave Mark and the podcast this week. And as I mentioned at the start, we're going to be taking a few weeks off on the podcast for our summer holidays. But fear not, we'll be back in September. We've got some cracking editions lined up for you. As ever, if you want to get in touch with your ideas and feedback on the podcast, we love to hear from listeners, especially the nice ones. I'm occasionally still found on Twitter or Platform X or whatever it is known as today, on at Lloyd's List Ed or on LinkedIn, just search Richard Mead, that's M-E-A-D-E. But the easiest route is the direct one, richard.mead at lloydslistintelligence.com. Until we meet again in September, thank you for listening and stay safe out there. Bye.